Welcome to Wappy Hour, a conversation hosted by InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions, giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God-given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond. You're in for a real treat today as Andrea Bridges, editor at The Well, speaks with author Karen Marsh. As part of our special summer series, we posted two excerpts from Karen Marsh's recently published book, Vintage Saints and Sinners. We hope you enjoy the conversation, and we're sure you'll want to visit InterVarsity Press to get a copy of this great book. Thanks so much for doing this. I I loved reading this book. It was so fun. to. It felt like you were just introducing us to your friends and Mm -hmm. then saying like, and here's, you know, that like wonderful introduction of, and here's why they're wonderful, and here's what I've learned from them. I kept thinking, oh, this person needs to know, this person at church needs to know about this. We should do this with young adults. It just is a great resource as a launch point too. Um, Great. Oh, I'm so so glad. I'm so glad. Yeah. Tell us a little bit just about your educational background and how that got you to where you are. I think one of the, you know, with our sort of academic women audience, having people starting points or what they thought was going to happen and then how they've ended up to where they are is always helpful to hear. (laughs) Well, I've, I feel like I've always been on the fringes of academia. I went to Wheaton college back in the day and majored in philosophy, which I thought was the best major there is because of course you, everybody's thinking all the time. And so what better way to be educated than to study philosophy. And it was a great experience. And then I thought, well, I'll do something practical. So I did a master's degree in linguistics, which mm-hmm. I think is kind of <laughs> hilarious. I think that was practical, but I was interested in teaching English as a second language. So mm-hmm. I took that degree and meanwhile married my husband, Charles Marsh, who is now a professor at the University of Virginia. So, and we got married very early. So from very, from college on, I've either been, you know, in school or married to a faculty member. And, and I just love the academic space. We're both preacher's kids who loved church, but loved the work of the mind and reading. When I met Charles, he was reading, I was 18. He told me he he was reading Faulkner and Heidegger. And it was like, it's my dream guy. (laughs) (laughs) So um, yeah, I do love academia, but I haven't had to suffer through a PhD. So it's kind of the ideal scenario. And so with his work and life in uh, at Loyola and then in Baltimore and then UVA, he's been following that path and he directs the project on lived theology at UVA, which is, is a Lilly Endowment project. And meanwhile, I started Theological Horizons, which is a 501c3 ministry nonprofit mm-hmm. that we actually started together in 1991 because we felt at the time he had just finished grad school, I had finished grad school, that there was just nobody understood or supported who we were and what we were about, which was this work of intellectual scholarship in public and elite universities as a work of discipleship. You know, people in the church were like, why don't you just go to a nice seminary? Why would you go to Harvard? You know, they're just like secular humanists or some horrible, you know, they had these crazy ideas. And people at Harvard and UVA were didn't understand, couldn't make sense of the faith piece or our church background was very exotic and odd to them. So Theological Horizons has always been about supporting Christians and seekers in academia. And what we really seek to do is provide a place like the well for conversations about faith and thought and life, you know, and how these conversations and these commitments intersect. We live at a place called the Bonhoeffer House, which we established in 2000 in Charlottesville. 
which is a, a, an old house built in 1910 where we live with our family as a place for conversation, for workshops, for lunches for students, mm -hmm. for hospitality, for a big library. And it's not really an identified Christian space for a lot of people. You know, we can have departmental mm -hmm. parties, we can have receptions for visiting speakers. So it's not a church. So it has, I think, a benefit of being a really open mm -hmm. kind of environment. And since it's a family place, people understand what that is. When you mm -hmm. when they you invite them to your house, they feel comfortable. So that's kind of what my world is. Um, and I'm just about a quarter of a mile from the rotunda. So an easy walk. You're right there right there yep with frat houses right across the street so we get the parties too it's a, but it's the center of campus life you're right in it that's a huge gift in terms of what y'all are doing yeah so tell us about where how this book became a book where did it start and how did it and where did the vintage saints and sinners idea <laughs> come from yeah well, about 14 years ago, a student named Susanna came to me and she asked me to lead a Bible study for her and her friends. And I, I don't even know how to say this. I felt a little weird about leading a Bible study. It sort of made me feel like I must be this great Christian woman of God type of thing, which at the time I just wasn't ready to own that. And I also knew that she had grown up in the church, but she was kind of disaffected. She really wasn't sure what she was going to do with her faith. And so I wasn't sure that a Bible study was right, the right format for her or the right format for us. And I didn't know her friends. So I said, well, let's get together and read some texts from the Christian tradition because it's intellectual. It can be very interesting. You know, you can highlight some really odd people. And you can argue with them. You know, if it's scripture, mm -hmm. there's already this reverence that we rightly bring to the scripture. But if it's a writing by Therese of Lisieux, who's 22 and she's dying of tuberculosis and like so excited that she's coughing up blood because now she's going to suffer. Like, you're like, wait, wait, what? <laughs> and you can struggle with that and you can disagree. Mm -hmm. So we started doing this Friday group. and But they still called it Karen's Bible study because we didn't have <laughs> I was like, first of all, I don't, it's not about me. And second, it's not a Bible study. So we called it vintage because to me that just had a fun resonance and it also made people curious about what it might be. So we still have, we had tea and cookies at the beginning and now we have a full blown lunch because, you know, if you make soup once, you always have to provide lunch. And once you make lasagna, like you're committed. So we have a full blown lunch and we have 50 or 60 undergrads who come every week. Wow. So it's become a thing. And I really love it because undergrads, Christians, non-Christians, people of other religions, kids who maybe don't feel at home in a Christian fellowship can come and they know that they're going to get a great meal. They're going to hear an interesting conversation. I'm going to tell them a story about someone like Thomas Merton. I'm thinking of Merton because I'm right here by Columbia where he was in school. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he had this sort of curious spiritual transformation from a artsy, poetic atheist or whatever he was to a Trappist monk. I'm like, look at this guy. When he was your age, he was at, he'd been kicked out of Cambridge, had a baby out of wedlock, apparently, you know, came to the United States, was in college and God just sort of found him and got him out of his chair and sent him up the road to Corpus Christi. And all of a sudden he's a monk, like, how interesting is that? Like, where are you in your life? And what do you think might happen to you? Right. 
Um, you have so no that, idea. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so we're just always like, what? It's really fun to tell the stories and then we can read the text together, which is what we do on Friday. So the book is a, the book of stories. It's not the primary text, mm -hmm. but the texts really, I think, give us a, a place to come together and look together at something. So if we're reading a letter from Mother Teresa, let's say, mm -hmm. um, that came out after her death, where she's talking about, I never hear God. You know, there is this sense of God's abandonment. I can say to them, wow, like, what did you think Mother Teresa was like? And how does this letter fit with what you thought of her? And what do you make of doubt? And have you ever felt that God wasn't speaking to you? So we can just have conversations without really any commitments at all. So that's the background. And so I lived with the stories. You talk about them as these saints as friends because I've been pitching them for 16, 18 years to undergrad. So you've got to find the interesting stuff. You know, St. Ignatius, when he got really radically, you know, religious, stopped cutting his fingernails. <laughs> okay, I didn't so know that. <laughs> yeah, because that was like his way of showing like, I'm really hardcore faithful here that I'm just gonna, I don't even care about my body. So I don't know, I just love these stories because I think they show us this, the beautiful variety of ways that we can come to God and the overall, the arch of our lives that, you know, where you are when you're 18 or when you're 25 or when you're 35, it's not going to be where you end up. Um, and God is part of that story. So that's a pretty long answer, but that's, that's the background to this book. So this has been a thing that's been happening continuously since that point, And it's just grown. And have you added people? Like, how do you meet? It feels like, you know, you're, you're probably running into new people all the time. How yeah. do they get integrated in? <laughs> yeah. Well, I started by using two books that I always recommend, which are devotional classics mm -hmm. and spiritual classics that foster some people ed uh, edited together. So it's, they're collections of readings. Mm -hmm. So I just started with those, but they're pretty long. And we, I only have uh, lunch and the discussion for an hour. So I started cutting and excerpting those mm -hmm. readings. And then I would just find somebody. I'd be reading an article or going online and I would run across a quote from St. Like Ephraim of Syria that I thought was cool. And I was like, well, who's that guy? You yeah. know, you sort of find your way into reading quotes from him and hymns. And he's written some really interesting things featuring women. And of course, I wanted more women. I wanted more people of color because it's just so easy to stay in the, the canon of white European saints, as we call them. And at first, the first thing I did was broaden my notion of saint. People easily are coming to my tent of saints. Flannery O'Connor is one. You know, just people who have this lived with this particular intensity of following God or having a spiritual point of view that was really deep and growing and vibrant. So when I wrote, wrote the book for Vintage Saints and Sinners, they only gave me 25. And I have volumes and volumes of writings and people because every week it's, it's kind of somebody different. But I actually added some people I'd never heard of before. I added Amanda Berry Smith. Yes, I know. one of our people, yeah. I, I love her. So I, I didn't know of her, but I literally went online and was Googling like black women prophets or preachers, just thinking, well, this, something's gonna come up. And there, there are, you know, there, there is this tradition of, of African-American women. She was born a slave in Maryland, as, as you know from the book, and just had a really hard life. She lived and died in poverty, but 
uh, had a real physical and vibrant sense of God's presence in her life and felt called to preach. She talks about seeing these flaming letters, you know, G-O, and she knew that God had called her to go out and preach. And so her autobiography, which is online uh, with the University of North Carolina, is available. And I started reading that and just took off. And I read her with students now. Sophie Scholl, you know, this young German mm-hmm. woman who was killed by the Nazis. I, I'd known of her when we lived in Berlin because German, many German young people honor her and her brother, and which is rare because for, for many people in Germany, you know, to find a Christian who stood up to Hitler is sadly a very unusual thing, a rare thing. So I, I'm just always, you know, looking out. And I was vis- here in New York, we're here for the summer, um, visiting an Orthodox church, you know, and I was, they were talking about Vladimir. I'm like, hmm, like who's Vladimir? So it's like my hobby, really. But there's, there's, there's just this endless, uh, I think, family and community that we're always meeting long lost relatives in the faith. Who are some of your favorites who didn't make it into the book? Oh, who didn't make it? I really was kind of sad um, that Francis de Salle didn't make it. He was a French priest who was an advisor to the court, and he wrote a lot of letters, spiritual letters, to people who were asking him all kinds of questions, usually around the questions of faith. And I found I find his letters to be very human and very engaging. So I, I love to read him with students because. Yeah, a letter is just a way right into someone's um, personal um, concern. Someone I added to the book who's one of my favorites that I had not heard of before is Juana Inez de la Cruz, who was a Mexican nun in colonial Mexico. And I found her through one of Charles's colleagues at UVA. But And I, I may mention, go, go into her more a little later. But who else didn't make it? Um, I think what happens is if you put in C.S. Lewis, you know, you, you put in one white guy, you're going to have to leave out like 10 others. <laughs> so it's mostly the white guys who got cut because I feel like they've had a lot of good coverage and, you know, we know where to find them. It was fun to see some of the classic people that you would think, oh yeah, these are the kind of Christian canon people, but then not, they weren't treated necessarily in the same way that the Christian canon treats them and sees them and was like, how do we think about this? But then this whole kind of new set of people that really did, it was like this window into your curiosity and engagement of just looking around and saying, oh, who's this, who is this person? Let's find, you know, let's, let's hunt these well, and I, and I, I feel like people, one thing that I have enjoyed hearing is the chapters are 2000 words. So you can literally like read a chapter, fall asleep, wake up and have, you know, even if you remember nothing, you can go on to the next chapter. You know, you've got young kids, uh, I mean, or you're on the bus or whatever. You just, you want to grab that little bit of intellectual content or inspiration or whatever, and feel like you've gotten something or you've learned something or you've met someone without feeling hugely committed. And I think that's one gift that this vintage lunch with students has been mm-hmm. to introduce them to, in a very accessible, inviting way to people that uh, are hugely important that who can really feed their souls and show them a whole new way into the Christian faith, into spiritual life. Like my own son, who's 25 now, at one point said, you know, I think I'm going to be a Buddhist. And I was like, well, that's interesting. Tell me more. And he's like, well, you know, I think contemplation, meditation is really important. And, you know, Buddhism could really give me that. 
And so I was ready with Brother Lawrence, you know, in the practice of the presence of God. And, you know, for me to be able to say, you know, there's this whole tradition of contemplative Christians who, who knew very well how to meditate and who can teach you and lead you into it mm-hmm. and had visions, you know, Julian of Norwich and this flame, you know, she saw a flaming hazelnut, like, that's crazy. <laughs> it's wild. Like, let's look at that. So I, I do feel like those, those traditions that we've often lost as contemporary American Christians, a lot of times I think we really want to regain those or at least meet them again. Mm-hmm. When we're looking for ways out of what feels to me sometimes like a trap mm-hmm. of dogma or doctrine or shallow Christianity. I don't know, whatever your problem is, there's always another Christian who can show you another way, I think. How have you seen that either with yourself, that process, or with students, the struggles of trying to wrestle with this faith that you've had and how that fits into your life now that you're in school or in graduate school or you know, kind of that transitional period where you're open to new ideas. Are there particular people that you've seen, like Brother Lawrence, that are like, okay, here's your, here's your go-to person sort of. I mean, or is there not consistency in how you've seen people respond to different things? Yeah, I think there's a range of ways that these stories engage students. I think that a personal story is often an invitation back or mm-hmm. into faith. Like I think of Augustine, is he's always a, a winner because if you've got, let's say a 19 year old boy who just pledged a sorority or fraternity, sorry, his mom is a Christian. His mother's been emailing me, Karen, probably <laughs> to try to get him to lunch, <laughs> you know, keep him in the faith. And you know, my child, yeah. Right. And this poor kid comes in because he's, he's just, his mother is like, won't stop harassing him and trying to get him to a Christian organization. So you know, he comes in the door and we talk and, you know, it's, it's, I can usually, I know the type, right? So I can tell, you know, we can read Augustine who his mother, Monica, was a, a deep Christian woman and just despaired of him because he, he was a party boy. He went to the University of Carthage and had no interest in the church, which he thought, Christianity, which is sort of an old backwater religion, was interested in rhetoric and, you know, all the great Greek and Roman thinkers. So he was cool and way too intellectual for his mom's like dumb Jesus or whatever. Mm -hmm. And she went to a a priest and said, you know, what am I going to do with him? And the the pastor was wise enough to say, well, you know, you've, this, this child, so many tears can certainly not be lost. And, you know, he struggled with his sexuality, he struggled with his desires, he struggled with his intellectual life. And, you know, it took him years to sort of claim the faith of his mother. But in the end, he did. And a lot of his in confessions, you know, you talk about his desires, like talking in his ear and his temptations. And I think he's just such a real person that for somebody like uh, a boy who's been dragged into lunch with me, it's disarming, you know, because I'm not delivering uh, a, a, even a teaching necessarily that feels like a demand. But I also think these saints give us real guidance in our lives with their words. And that shapes me a lot because when, I he- when I'm in a conversation with somebody and they're sharing something with me, even if they're asking me for advice or, you know, friends, we ask each other, what should I do? I'm always thinking in my mind, okay, who speaks to this moment? And what mm-hmm. words would they have to offer here? Mm-hmm. And I like to put other their words in front of mine because it gives me it shields me a little bit from giving some bad advice. 
last night I was talking to a friend and she's starting a new business. And she just, she said she keeps feeling like she can't let go of this, this idea for her business, but there are all these obstacles. And, you know, she's asking me, well, are the obstacles God trying to direct me away from this business or this calling? Or is it Satan trying to get in my way? Or is it my own desire? That's my selfishness. Like, how do I think about the way forward? Should I, should I give it up? Is it too much? And I was like, wow, you know, those are really good questions that I think we all, when we're looking for what we talk about, you know, God's will for our lives, you know, and what, what is the way forward and why are we doing what we do? So I'm thinking like going through my little Rolodex of, of people, of saints. And I thought of Thomas Merton and a prayer that he prays, which James Martin has called the prayer that anyone can pray. He says, you know, my, my Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. And he goes on and he says, but I believe that desire to please you does in fact please you. And you know, it goes on like that. And finally he says, I will not fear for you are ever with me and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. And so I felt like, wow, that prayer, you know, I could give it to my friend as words of someone who's certainly way down the path ahead of me. You know, he went through so many different journeys. He's such a person of faith and a person of Jesus. But his words comfort me a lot because if I can pray that prayer, I think, okay, you know, I have all these questions, but I just know that I'm trying to follow God. So these prayers and these words, I think, are very formative for me. And they also allow me to share some of that with friends, you know, other pilgrims, because that's that's what we are. So yeah, they've been, these, these words and these people have been hugely formative for me. And I think for students, it's a comfort, you know, to think, say, I'm, I'm doubting, but I don't, I feel bad about that. Like, mm. I should believe I should be a better Christian. You know, I could be stronger. I just need to have a better quiet time or whatever. And if you can say, well, you know, there's this whole thing about the dark night of the soul that Christians, believers have experienced and written about for years. So you just might be experiencing something that brothers and sisters have experienced before you. So it's okay. Like, don't be afraid. There's some light there. So we've posted excerpts from these two women you mentioned, Amanda Barry Smith and then Juana Inez de la Cruz, because they are people that I didn't know about. And then like, these are women, you know, these are like the graduate school women, you know, right? <laughs> yeah, they are. In, in one way or the other, Amanda Barry, you know, like different, but are there other people that you would point sort of our community to that you're like, oh, you've got to meet these people. <laughs> got to meet these people. Well, I do love Sophie Scholl. I mentioned her. Mm-hmm. You know, she was at the University of Munich and she and her brother and this tiny little group of like seven of them were convinced that Hitler should go. And th- these were young students during the Third Reich in Munich, which was a very big stronghold of Nazi power. And so they started writing on walls at night and distributing little leaflets, like flyers in the night. And they would take trains to other cities to mail them. So the Nazis thought they were this huge organization, but it was just really the the six or seven of them. And we know that, you know, they did it out of faith in Jesus, that Christ had called them and out of their own humanity. But I just love the image of this university student who had really no power to speak of and no influence 
Mm. But she'd been, she was convinced, you know, by her father that, you know, if you must, you know, in thought, word, and deed, like if you believe something and you're called to something, you have to do what you can do. And the rest is, is out of your hands. And I think having lived through eight years of graduate school with me and my husband, I, I, sometimes you feel like, what difference could this possibly make? You know, this dissertation on, you know, fill in the title. <laughs> they all seem <laughs> obscure, right? But, you know, it's just you're, you're doing that act of faithfulness and discipleship that you're called to do. And I, I feel like, and she died for it. You know, she, was, she wasn't even 24 when, the, you know, the Nazis caught them, killed them. That was the end. And so, sure, you can say, well, that was a bad idea. And yet Germans revere them and the Nazi era came to a close. And you know, how do we judge success or failure? So I think she's a good example of seeing a wall. She talked about knocking a chip out of the wall. You know, what is the wall that's in front of you? And how will you knock a chip out of it? And that's really all that you're called to do. And that's a hard thing, I think, because we are used to, we, are, we want to see success. We want to finish our dissertation, of course, or, or get or make tenure or whatever it is. But I think we all need to be encouraged about that. And I also love, I would say, Fannie Lou Hamer for her courage and her mm. joy. So she is one of these civil rights, American civil rights stories where she was literally a sharecropper on a plantation in Mississippi, went to a voter rights mass meeting, stood up, raised her hand that she would go down to register to vote. And by the time she got home, she'd been kicked off of her farm by the plantation owner. She was beaten in prison for uh, injured for the rest of her life. And yet she followed Jesus to stand up for voter rights and to raise the, the voice of black people in Mississippi. She, you know, went all the way to Washington and stood up to the vice president. And she said, you know, Mr. Vice or Johnson, I said, I don't know, have all my facts right, but it's basically, I know you're worried about doing the right thing because you might lose your job, but, you know, I did that and, you know, it turned out all right. <laughs> I mean, she just has this way where she just saw clearly what needed to be done and what her part was and her courage, her persistence, the risk that she took. For me, I think, well, I have so much to protect and I know I don't take risks and I don't have that courage that she had. But if I can just follow her a little bit, then um, I'm going in the right direction. So I think these women who do these things that maybe don't make a lot of sense are good for people in, in academia, because I think to think I'm going to change the world with my words and with my ideas and with my teaching, that's a hard thing to believe sometimes, I think. But it's so important. And it is the right thing, because ideas matter. And the work of scholars does matter. It just takes the long view, I think, don't you? Yeah, well, and when you're in the middle of the process, even if you have the sense of like, I have this calling, I have this vision, I know what I want to do. There's a lot of steps that are really small and really arduous. There's a lot of boxes to check off before you can be like, I made it to the junior faculty position. <laughs> <laughs> The adjunct <laughs> professorship at the community college. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and there's that, I, I'm thinking too about, uh, I can go off. This is, a, this is how my mind works. Like Benedict and Scholastica, yeah. you know, they got up every morning 
they followed their routines, they read the prayers, they read the Psalms, they did their work in the community, and it wasn't exciting and it wasn't sexy. And every day was pretty much like the day before. Mm -hmm. So they lived this monastic life, which I think has a lot to do with the scholarly life where you get up and you get on your laptop with your cup of coffee and you're just going to have to like do this, stay in your chair for these hours. And I think the scholastic, um, the monastic, it's, it's, it's a lot of the same kind of living. And yet they, they saw that as faithfulness and they saw that as rhythm and they saw that as, as a healthy way to be in the world. So I love to hold them up as examples of people who teach us, you know, how to get things done, mm-hmm. uh, but how to kind of do the same thing every day. Which can be really challenging to mm-hmm. say, okay, my job is to show up in the lab and pull. we have a friend who was like, my job is to pull wings off fruit flies every day. <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> well, I really, I do. And that's like, I, that's how I started reading them when my kids were little, because they were the, I have two, three, three kids, the two little boys. I mean, they're like chewing up chocolate covered espresso beans in the kitchen and then running around madly while I'm cleaning that up. You know, they're cra- they're coloring on the walls and then you're doing laundry and then you're changing a diaper and you think, what is it for? Like why? And that, I just felt like there's gotta be some meaning in this because it's fun sometimes, but it's also really insane to be raising babies. And that's when I found Benedict and Scholastica and they, they really helped me with the theology of that ordinary life and picking wings off flies. So <laughs> I hold them up. <laughs> Do you have people who you feel like you come back to over and over again? Hmm, that's a good question. Let me see. I have my book here. You know, I always feel like Henry Nowen has something to say if I'm feeling anxious or upset or unsure of myself, because Henry Nowen is constantly bringing me back to the idea that the truth, I am God's beloved, that my identity is not what I do or what I possess or how intelligent I am, what I accomplish, but it's that God loves me, that I'm a child of God, and that is truly all that matters, and it's who I am. All of his books are super easy to read, so I feel like no matter what state I'm in, I can read Henry Nowen. Mm-hmm. And I know that he lived with depression. He lived with anxiety. You know, he knows all the feelings that I feel. And he was an intellectual. He taught at Harvard and Yale. You know, he had, a, he had at least one PhD. And yet he left all that to go to L'Arche and live with people with mm-hmm. living with disabilities. So again, I think he's a story that I can, a witness where I can see he he gave up status to do, to live the life that fed his soul, that God mm-hmm. had called him to. So I returned to him. Of course, Flannery O'Connor is just such an amazing writer. And I love her stories and I love her literature. I love her view of the world and of the spirit. And I trust her. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is kind of our patron saint. I often forget to mention him. <laughs> I kind of like... The guy I know so well, I don't even think about. But, you know, again, Bonhoeffer always reminds me of the goodness of the world and Mm. the beauty of friendship and community and companionship and the work of theology. And he stood up in really hard times. You know, he died for his faith. He left a safe 
opportunity, you know, opportunity to stay safe in New York and went back to Germany, knowing that he would die. And, you know, in times like ours with, with all the politics and the insecurity about our future, I think Bonhoeffer is a great one to remember and to read because of his strong faith and his courage. Yeah. But his love for his life too, you know. Yeah. Seems like a common theme is just being reminded that you're not alone in whatever you're, and you're not the first person. This is not a new thing in whatever circumstances you find yourself in that this is, you're not the first person and that someone else has done it faithfully with God and that they have, that person has not left you with nothing too, that that's something that you can draw on, even if they're not here next to you. Absolutely. You are not alone. And we think about all the centuries, all the years, all the cultures, you know, all the circumstances where people followed God, followed Christ, you know, in the Christian tradition, no matter who they were, where they were, that they found God, God found them. They had these, these encounters, these transformational moments, or, and maybe not even a moment, like, you know, maybe Scholastica, she just did it <laughs> for years and centuries or decades. And finally, you know, she, she became that, that person that she was, you know, she'd always been intended to be, but lived into her mm-hmm. calling over years. So whether it's looking for that moment or that practice, that it's, there's always somebody there, I think, from your past who could be a mentor, can be an older sister, an older brother, to someone you can follow. There are words for many of them that we can read now, even these many, many centuries later. Ephraim of Syria, you know, writes these, I mentioned his hymns are so beautiful. And I was reading them and I thought, I cannot believe that this man lived in the year 400 or whatever it is. I'm always, I'm, I'm not a historian. I always have to look back at my dates. but you know, he, he knew what I feel, you know, he mm-hmm. knew, and he talks about the incarnate incarnation, how Jesus willingly became this human and he could phrase it in a way that's new for me. And I can hear it in a new way and I can believe it more mm-hmm. um, when I thought maybe I couldn't ever believe it. And of course we think about all the saints, the people who followed God, who, whose words we will never know, yeah. um, you know, who were never preserved for us or the people now, even around us, you know, our grandmothers, our aunts, the people, the you know, if you're in grad school, maybe the woman in the cafe who's serving you coffee, mm-hmm. you know, that person could be right in front of you and can speak into your life now and remind you that you're not alone. Is there anything else before we go? I would just say, I, I think I would say for women in the academy that, you know, I would just invite you to find ways, you know, if you are a person of faith, to find these witnesses and these Christians who can speak into your work and that you can share with others in your work find the stories that speak to you and, and just follow the thread. You know, if you're a scientist, if you're a physicist, you know, if you're a philosopher, you know, find those, those Christian witnesses, those mentors, the brothers and sisters who've gone ahead of you, who help shine a light on the scholarly work that you do because their faith um, and their thinking can encourage you and they can be a companion to you in whatever arena that you're in. They can also help you because they're crazy too. So (laughs) all your problems are not, you know, they've seen them all before. So there's comfort in that. So I'm just kind of repeating myself because I think that there are a lot of surprising people out there 
so maybe the words of Thomas Merton, you know, I will not fear for you are ever with me and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. That's the promise that we have. Oh, can I make one pitch? Yeah. So, uh, on my website, karenwrightmarsh.com, and also Theological Horizons, I have a whole collection of vintage sessions. So they're primary text readings that go with the books. So they're 25. I hunted them down. I'm you did. I, I have a plan for them already for my own Good. life. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm working on them right now with my laptop, oh. and there are discussion questions too. So it's a super easy way if you're in a small group or you just want to have some daily readings or sort of dig in deeper, free PDFs, print them out. And you've got little Mother Teresa. You've got Tozer, my little problematic saint. You'll have to read the book to find out about Tozer. But No, but he was one of the ones that I was, this is a surprise, but I loved that you figured out a way to put him in and to say, huh, hmm. this guy isn't a paragon of everything you hope to be, but he fits somewhere. Where does he fit? Right. I'm still wondering that, but I did put him in for that reason because I thought, let's see what we can do with when, when can I not follow somebody? Mm. So your listeners will have to, or readers will have to find out for themselves. But yeah, so please use those free resources and share them. Yeah, I think they're just good little companions to the book and are just there for the taking. So, Well, thank you for doing the work so that they are there for the taking for those of us <laughs> who are thinking, hmm. We do have a group of graduate students getting together in the fall. What shall we do with them? <laughs> <laughs> I've got it for you. You can print it out. You're done in five minutes. Yeah. Thank so, you so much. And there's always more, more stuff coming. So, Well, it is, I'm glad that you have, the internet has found you and you have found the internet. I'm thankful. For, <laughs> for sure. Well, thank you for letting me part, be part of your community. I'm really honored and love the work that you're doing, that, that all of your fellow travelers are involved in and I'm admiring you and passing you on because I do, I meet a lot of grad students and scholars and want to hold up your work as something that's worthy and fruitful. So thanks. Yeah, for thank you. Karen, thank you so much. Thanks. Bye. Be well. Peace. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to WAPI Hour. WAP, Women in the Academy and Professions, is a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. Thanks for joining our conversation today. We'd love to hear your feedback. To offer it or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections we provide, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well. You can find us at thewell.intervarsity.org.